Cliff's actually going to do the talk this morning, the homily, we'll call it, given a flash name. Um, I just want to make some uh, introductory remarks, because it seems to me that much of what Cliff is going to talk about uh, is about what this gospel reading is about, particularly the opening lines which Jesus um, talks about. Those who love me will keep my word and my Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. The really key part of that is what is Jesus' word? And I guess that's what Christians have been fighting for for the last 2,000 years, fighting amongst ourselves, our different understandings of what Jesus' word is. This lesson, this piece of the Gospel is set in the Last Supper. In John's Gospel, that begins with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That was an acted-out version of his word, of what Jesus' whole message was about, washing his disciples' feet. Which for us is, oh well, he washed his disciples' feet, so what? But actually it was huge. Rabbis did not wash their disciples' feet. Slaves washed feet. Servants washed feet. Not the rabbi, not the teacher. The teacher's feet were washed. And Jesus acted out what he kept saying. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind by loving your neighbour as yourself. So I think the story around Gate Car is a failure of both. It is both a failure of honouring Jesus' word and a story of honouring Jesus' word. So with that introduction, I'm going to invite Cliff to come. Uh, on Friday we had a service here. We had about 150 people here um, who came and remembered the battle. Uh, and as part of Cliff's prayer towards the end, he offered this reflection as an introduction. So um, Cliff's going to offer that. Marion thought it was so good that it should be repeated this Sunday, and I didn't like it. So. Well, that's good. So this, uh, some of you will have heard me talk about this on Friday. Um, I just wanted to uh, give a bit more sort of a background to to what happened here, uh, and I've changed things around a little bit uh, for us today. So I'm going to offer a prayer in a moment, but I would like to make a few observations first. 
There is a tendency here in Tauranga to see these battles as a simple contest between right and wrong, but that is a, a little bit too simplistic. The reality is that wars develop for a number of very complex reasons, and each side usually believes that they are right and that they are just. Plato told us over 2,000 years ago that only the dead have seen an end to war. He was sadly telling us that war is part of the human condition. It's something that we do as a species when we are at our worst. All cultures have embraced and glorified war, and if we think that we're any better now than perhaps our forebears were 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, let me just remind you that the century that we had just departed, the 20th century, was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. Now we can uh, look at this battle in a number of different ways, and there are people who hold different points of view. But the service that we had on Friday was called 60 Bells, because it focused on the approximately 60 lives that were lost right here where we sit today. And it was an event that was absolutely pivotal to the establishment of our city and the communities that we live in. So our aim on Friday was to respect those men in the same way that we had respected all of the men and women who had fought and died in wars and who we remembered on Anzac Day on Monday. I was very taken by the words of Helen Ann Hartley, who was the Bishop of Waikato, uh, at the 150th commemorations of the battle in 2014. And um, it was up at the Otanataha Pa, or the Mission Cemetery. And she said, wouldn't it have been so much better if General Cameron and Rauri Pukiraki had sat down and shared a pipe and talked about their problems and tried to work it out. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. It seemed easier in the end to fight. But the tragic legacy of that battle has lasted for 150 years, and it will go into the future. It's part of our story, and we are part of it. So the warriors, uh, the men and women who were in this part here on this spot, were trying to defend their land and their way of life. Their plan was to draw the British into a decisive battle. And that was part of what those invitations that were sent were about. They underwent a six or seven hour bombardment. That would have been horrifying. They wouldn't have experienced anything like that, and they weren't expecting that when they built the park. However, the park was so well designed that they survived. But when the barrage lifted, it didn't mean that it was all over. It just meant that now the assault would take place. The softening up had happened, and now the infantry and the sailors would come in and there would be ferocious hand-to-hand fighting. So the fact that they survived that and were eventually able to repel the soldiers and sailors out of the pile was quite remarkable. But let's um, also think about those soldiers and sailors who had come from the other side of the world, from as far away as it was possible to come on the globe. They were part of the ever-expanding British Empire, People those days saw things quite differently than we do, and they interacted with other cultures in a different way. They had a different worldview. 
Today we might visit a country and we might be fascinated by the culture and the beliefs and we would want to learn about them. But in those days, especially in a colony where the indigenous population was small and where there was uncontrolled and rapid immigration, such sentiments hardly existed. For example, in 1863, the year before this battle, 43,000 people came into New Zealand. That was nearly the population of the Māori at the time. But 43,000 people coming in, looking to start a new life, and obviously looking for new places to settle. The settlers and the soldiers had been taught to value their Britishness. They were proud of the expanding empire, and they believed that the, their Britishness was civilising and modernising the world. And here's just a, this is a picture of the, um, the Durham Light Infantry. These are the men from County Durham, just before the battle. There was a very strong belief uh, in empire and in British values. I can remember as a, as a boy growing up in North Canterbury, my father uh, had a, a war map. And on that map, we, uh, we used to play games and try and identify all the different countries and capitals of the world. And as a little boy, I was proud in the, 19, in the late 1960s of all of the red or the pink on the map, because that was all the British possessions. And that was me, probably a fifth generation New Zealander, but it was, that was the, the, the idea of the empire still, it still was there. Um, I think that I'm probably of the last generation that felt like that. I know my children have no, none of that sentiment. But the, the idea of the empire was important, and I know a lot of you were actually born in the United Kingdom. The empire upon which the sun never set, the greatest empire the world had ever seen. There was a belief that it was culturally and morally, economically and technolo technologically more evolved, more sophisticated. And of course that was true in many ways. And if you really wanted to push the point, some people believed that British people and white people had been given God's, uh, a God-given duty to reach out and civilise the world, to go into the unlightened corners, talk to the natives, to spread Christianity, to spread enlightenment, to discover and to make the unproductive parts of the world productive. Who do you think was the greatest role model in the United Kingdom during the Victorian period? That's a question to you. Who was, who would, if you were a, uh, someone in Victorian England, who would you look up to as a greater person and a greater exemplar of the morals and the standards and what you aspire to be than anyone else in Victorian England. Let's have some suggestions. Sorry? Florence Nightingale was one suggestion and she certainly was, was revered and had a lot of influence. The Salvation Army. The, the king or Queen Victoria um, through that time. And there were a lot of uh, military people who were revered, uh, a lot of industrialists and inventors, a lot of people who made an awful lot of money out of um, the colonies and out of manufacturing and, and the new industries. But Ken actually said before, Dr. David Livingstone, 
He was the person who um, I was reading his biography recently, or part of it, and he was, uh, it is argued, seen as the great role model, the great British hero. He, he was what a lot of people thought. He was brave, determined, he was compassionate, he was against slavery, he was born in Scotland out of, in a poor family, but a Christian family. He worked in the mills, he studied at night, he became a doctor, he became a Christian medical missionary. He became an explorer in darkest Africa. And when he died at the age of 60 in 1873, just nine years after this battle, he died of um, malaria. He actually died of dysentery caused by malaria in modern-day Zambia. And his body was brought back to England, and he was buried at Westminster, but uh, the Africans who brought him back cut his heart out and said, you can have his body, but his heart belongs to Africa. And this is the sort of image that was in the minds of people who, um, who were going out around the world. But the empire was also about trade and commercialism, and it was about making a lot of money as well. Part of the, um, the process of this spread of the empire was um, warfare, and between 1850 and, uh, and 1914, the outbreak of the First World War, Britain was fighting in one of the colonies every year. So every year there was a battle going on somewhere. So there were definitely positive aspects about um, that influence, and our nation really developed over the next couple of generations after these battles. New Zealand by 1900 was so different to the way it was in 1850. But such thinking also carried an arrogance and a disrespect for people who weren't quite the same, and it carried a disrespect for the indigenous people. The indigenous people in this process were often just swept aside. But if we think about the officers uh, and the soldiers that were here, the officers were from um, wealthy families. In those days, you still were purchasing your commission, so you actually had to pay quite a lot of money to have your rank. And Colonel Booth here um, was the son of a wealthy industrialist family that owned ironworks. The soldiers and the sailors were more likely to be the casualties of that rapid industrialization and urbanization that was happening in the United Kingdom. Many of them joined up just so they could have three meals a day, a bed, and something to avoid the drudgery of their lives. And like the warriors inside the car, they feared death. They would have been anxious as they went into this battle. They feared death, they feared injury, and they, perhaps more than anything, feared being left inside the car uh, and wounded. Despite what Hollywood might portray, um, combat is usually a horrifying whirlwind of panic and fear. So let's uh, just think about the mothers and fathers and the wives and the children here in Moana, who received the news that their men had been killed in this battle. Think about the dislocation of those communities as their land was taken and they lost their cultural and their economic base and the ability to move ahead as the rest of their country developed. And also think about the mothers and fathers and wives 
and families back in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. They would have received the news many months later that their men had died on this place, on the other side of the world. They wouldn't have really known where it was and they wouldn't have known how to pronounce it. And they would never have come to visit the graves and many would now face a life of poverty. But there was some kindness shown here that day amongst all the carnage. We know about the rules of war that were referred to before. And these are quite extraordinary. Here's a summary of them. Um, these are quite extraordinary and they are unique to this particular series of battles, this and Tehran. And they were a revolution in thinking. Now, um, we don't quite know the full story, but these rules may have actually come from the missionary Reverend Wilson, who was actually here in Tauranga uh, earlier on, and then went to the Taranaki in 1861. And he proposed this set of rules. Um, well, he was sent to Taranaki by Governor War Brown during the Taranaki War in 1860-1861. And what was happening at the time was that some of the um, soldiers that were being captured by the Maori or left wounded were being executed or tortured. And of course the soldiers weren't particularly kind to the Maori either. And so he went down there to try and, and get agreement to a set of rules. And his rules were that all the wounded should be treated with humanity, that prisoners should be uninjured and exchanged, that the dead should be unmolested and buried by their respective people, and that persons approaching under a flag of truce shall be respected. And it's interesting that that's very similar to these rules that were written here in 1864. In 1862, the Christian chief Rauri Puhiraki, who was actually the battle commander here in the park, wrote a letter to the commissioner here in Tauranga and said that if the British troops ever came here, he would fight fairly, and he explained what he would do. And then in 1864, as we know, Hinaro Teratoa sent a letter to Colonel Greer explaining what those rules would be, and, um, and he signed it on behalf of all the chiefs. So there had definitely been something happening here um, and what I'm really saying is that the Christian influence had been active in this area. It was estimated by 1860 that perhaps half of Maori were, had, had adopted Christianity. The mission, that was an estimate by the missionaries, but all the different denominations were actually competing against each other. It's probably an overestimation. But certainly the Christian thinking had started to, to develop on the morning of the battle here, there were uh, prayers. There were definitely Maori Christians inside this park. People often talk about slavery, polygamy, cannibalism. All of that stuff had gone a, a generation earlier. And the warriors here at Gate Park don't deserve that label. The, uh, the way that... I know John has spoken from time to time about the way that um, the, the, the gospel was spread... But can you imagine what it was like in a, in, a, in a world where there was nothing to read and nothing to do when, the, when it got dark at night? And of course, Maori had traditionally sat around and they had talked and they had told stories of their ancestors and they had recounted their traditions. Well, now that the Bible had arrived, written in Maori, you only needed one person who could read it, you only needed one gospel, 
um, and they would sit down and that person would read the stories and then they would all discuss it. So Maori were very familiar with the Bible and the stories. So we know that uh, there was compassion shown inside the park after the battle. We know that the soldiers and sailors were given water. We know that none of the wounded were harmed, and this was greatly appreciated by Governor Gray and others, and that's partly why the word chivalry is used in respect to this battle. And we also know that some of the um, soldiers, uh, some of the, uh, the Maori warriors were taken to the British hospital. There was a makeshift hospital down in the mission buildings, and those uh, Maori warriors were treated. In fact, I think some of them even got to Auckland. Something that we don't know quite so much about, perhaps, because some people feel uncomfortable about it, is that two Victoria Crosses were awarded right here. One to a sailor called Samuel Mitchell, and another to a surgeon called Samuel Ma- uh, William Manley. And the citations on their Victoria Crosses that explain why they were awarded them sound remarkably similar to the citation for Corporal Willie Apiata's Victoria Cross in Afghanistan. They carried their wounded comrades from the field of battle under fire. And I've got no doubt in my mind that as the Maori warriors vacated the par that night, the British cordon had closed up, they were trying to stop people leave the par, and as the warriors carried their wounded kin with them through the British lines, that similar acts of selfless bravery took place. So those British soldiers and sailors who came from far away, they now lie in this land, just as thousands of New Zealanders, both Māori and Pākehā, lie in distant lands. Their blood has mingled with the blood of the warriors who fought and died to defend this land. So in many senses, both physically and metaphorically, they have become one. They've become part of this land that we all now live on. And you can see that I'm alluding to the wonderful words of reconciliation by Mustafa Kamal, later known as Attitude, about our fallen at Gallipoli. He made a special, uh, wrote a special mention to the Australian and New Zealand mothers who had lost their sons. And he said, You, the mothers who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives in this land, they have become our sons as well. And here in Tauranga, the men who died right here where we sit, Māori and Pākehā, they are our sons and they lie in our bosom. They are part of our story and we are part of theirs. So will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray for the memory of those Māori and Pākehā who fought and died here in this place 152 years ago. And for the large numbers who sustained injuries, both physical and psychological, that remained with them throughout their lives. We think of the families who suffered from the loss of their men, and we acknowledge the severe economic and social dislocation that the tongue of the family suffered for generations 
because of the unjust confiscation of their land. Father, help us never to forget this story. Help us to be kind, loving and respectful to our fellow men. Let us see your goodness in all people. Help us to work for social justice. And where conflict threatens, help us to smoke the pipe of peace rather than turn to anger and violence. Help us to right the wrongs of the past and to build a city that our forebears would be both proud of and astonished by. And help us to work so that all ethnic groups and all cultures in this city walk together into the future as brothers and sisters in peace. 